You are listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Fortunately for all of us, there's a great deal of research being done on one of the world's most lethal infectious diseases, malaria. In this segment, we will discuss promising new research on both prevention and treatment of this modern-day scourge. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson, a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University in Chicago. With me today is Dr. Christopher Plow, an internationally recognized expert on malaria. He is Professor-in-Chief, Malaria Section of the Center for Vaccine Development for the University of Maryland School of Medicine. He is also a Doris Duke Distinguished Clinical Scientist of the Medical School. Dr. Plow has received NIH grants for the study of malarial resistance and vaccine development. Welcome, Dr. Plow. Thank you for joining us. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Let's start with the scope of the problem. How many people does malaria kill every year? Well, it's hard to really get a, a hard number for that, but the best estimates are somewhere between 1 and 3 million. Where is the highest mortality rate? What countries? It's by far the worst in sub-Saharan Africa, so above South Africa and really in the, in the tropical areas, and it kills mostly young children under the age of 5 and pregnant women. Uh, sounds very terrible. How many people are newly infected every year? Oh, gosh, that's that's estimated to be in the hundreds of millions, somewhere around 300 to 500 million. And actually, that's in cases of clinical disease, so the number of infections is astronomical. It'll be in the billions. So to review, perhaps uh, 1 to 2 billion people get some sort of infection, 300 to 500 million manifest symptoms, and 1 to 3 million people actually die of it. That would be our, our best numbers for those figures, yes. Assuming the disease doesn't kill you outright, what can one expect in terms of recurrences? Well, that's an interesting question, and it gives us a chance to talk about the different types of human malaria. So there are four species of malaria that infect people, and they, they each have somewhat different characteristics. And a couple of those, Plasmodium vivax and Plasmodium ovale, have a, a dormant stage in the liver that doesn't cause any symptoms. So if you take a, an anti-malarial drug that kills the malaria parasites in your blood without a drug that gets the liver stage, you can get cured of your initial infection, but then those dormant liver stages will emerge anywhere up to three or five years later and, and make you sick again. But the, the, the other forms of malaria can be suppressed in your blood, and, and if you don't cure them completely, they can also come back later. So review the uh, four types of malaria for our audience. Sure, yeah. So actually there are, there are hundreds of malaria species, uh, Plasmodia species, that's the, the name of the genus, but only four of them infect humans. There are mouse malarias, bird malarias, snake malarias, all, all kinds of malarias. Uh, and in fact, there was even a, a malaria outbreak at the Baltimore Zoo among the penguins some time back. Um, but uh, there are four species that infect humans. Plasmodium falciparum is the one that we think about the most because that's the big killer. And so if, if we just say malaria, we, we typically mean that one, Plasmodium falciparum. And then Plasmodium vivax is the next most common, and that, that tends to be uh, more common outside of Africa. And then two less common ones are Plasmodium ovale and Plasmodium malariae. Do they cause different symptoms in people? Yeah, the important thing to remember is that falciparum is the deadly one. That, that's the one that's associated with the different forms of severe malaria, which are severe anemia and cerebral malaria being the two most common ones. And, and the other distinctive feature is that vivax malaria and ovale malaria, their life cycle is every 72 hours instead of every 48 hours. So the fever cycle tends to follow that pattern of a, a fever spike every 72 hours, whereas the other ones 
you tend to get a fever spike every every other day. In terms of falciparum malaria, the deaths are mostly confined to young children and pregnant women. The deaths in areas where people are regularly exposed to malaria hit those two vulnerable populations. But if you look at travelers, for example, uh, malaria kills people of all ages with no uh, discrimination. And the reason for that difference is that if you're repeatedly exposed to malaria, eventually you'll build up some protective immunity and so that kids who are growing up in an African village where they're bitten by infected mosquitoes almost on a nightly basis, by the time they get to be five or six, if malaria hasn't killed them, they're relatively protected. Whereas if you and I travel over there, uh, we don't have the protection that older children and, and African adults might have, so we're just as susceptible. I see. Are the more mild forms of malaria, Vivax and Ovali, pose a threat of lethality to travelers, or is this really uh, the falciparum type? There is the possibility of dying from uh, Vivax and Ovali and, and even malaria. Uh, you can get a splenic rupture, for example, but really the, 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 the killer is falciparum, and, and we can go into the reasons why that's different from the others, if you'd like, at some point. As a matter of fact, uh, that actually is my next question. Can you tell us a little bit about the a life cycle of the parasite. Now, it sounds to me like there's actually four different parasites that we're talking about is, in terms of life cycle. Is that correct? Yeah, but they, they all share some basic features uh, of the life cycle, and they're all transmitted by mosquitoes, and it's the female Anopheles mosquito, a specific type of mosquito, that when she takes a blood meal, she injects parasites that are in her salivary glands, and so the, the mosquito spit gets in and these sporozoites, they're called. They're about as long as a red cell is wide, about seven microns long, and little worm-like things. They quickly get into your blood vessels and migrate to the liver. There they invade your hepatocytes and get inside your liver cells. And over about a week or two, they multiply. So an individual malaria parasite, a sporozoic, gets into one liver cell, and seven to ten days roughly later, you've now got 20 to 30,000 malaria parasites in your liver cell, so it's a, it's a huge amplification. At that point, you're not sick at all. The liver stage doesn't cause any illness, and the hepatocyte will burst. You'll release that 20 or 30,000 parasites out into the blood, then each one of those in turn invades one of your red blood cells, and, and that's where this 48-hour cycle that's associated with symptoms happens. Inside each infected red blood cell, the parasites again multiply until you've got anywhere from 10 to 20 or so parasites inside a red cell. It'll burst the cell. Those parasites will now go on and invade new red cells, and it's that cycle of invasion, multiplication, bursting the red cell, and reinvasion that is causing all the disease. If you have just joined us, you are listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson, and my guest is Dr. Christopher Plow, an internationally recognized expert on malaria and professor of medicine at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. Today we are discussing the epidemiology and pathophysiology of one of the world's most lethal infectious diseases, malaria. Now, we had just been talking about the life cycle of Plasmodia. Is it pretty much the same, I gather, for all four types of plasmodia? Yeah, it, it is. The, the one difference being that uh, I, I described how the parasites go through the liver when they come out of the mosquito and, and spend a stage there multiplying before they get into your blood. With two of the plasmodium species, the Vivax and Ovali, there's a dormant liver stage called hypnozoites where they just kind of hang, hang out in your liver for anywhere up to three to five years. 
and they can come out and cause disease later. One, one thing I didn't tell you, though, is, is how it gets back into the mosquito uh, to complete the life cycle. Doesn't just another mosquito come along and bite the person when the parasites are in a bloodstream? Yeah, but the forms of the parasites that are causing the disease aren't actually ones that can be transmitted to the mosquito. Some of those blood stage parasites, instead of going on through that cycle of uh, multiplication and, and reinvading the red cells, have to differentiate into a sexual stage. So they actually become male and female uh, gametocytes, they're called. And, and if that hasn't happened, the mosquito can take up malaria parasites and nothing will happen. But if, if the parasites have switched to this gametocyte pathway and now they're, they're males and females, the mosquito takes up some of those and they actually mate in the mosquito's midgut and progress through a couple of other life stages, migrate to the salivary glands, and then it starts all over again. You know, as I'm talking to you, I completely now remember why I forgot everything I learned about malaria in medical school because I found it so unbelievably confusing. Just telling me about the uh, sexual differentiation reminded me of this. So how do the uh, parasite choose or not choose to differentiate in the human host bloodstream? That's something that uh, I and others are pretty interested in because if you could understand how the parasite does that, you might be able to figure out ways to control it and, and block transmission. But the, the truth is we don't know specifically what the mechanisms are. On the other hand, we do know some things that tend to trigger it. And the way I like to think about it is that if things look unhealthy for the parasite in your blood, so for example, if there are drugs in your blood that are going to kill it, or if your immune system is attacking it, or if you're about to die yourself, the parasite doesn't want to die along with you. So uh, when, when things go bad, you know, in terms of an acidic pH or high temperatures or that sort of thing, when the environment gets uh, toxic for the parasite, it says, uh-oh, let's, let's look for a mosquito and catch the next one out of here, and then it starts to differentiate. So, you know, after treatment uh, or when the patient is quite sick, that's when you see a lot of these sexual stages start to appear. That's opposite of intuition because you would think that when things are going swimmingly for the parasite, that's when it would differentiate, but I gather... Uh, I think yeah, when things are going swimmingly for the parasite, it's quite happy to stay put doing what it's doing, and it can do that chronically in people who are able to tolerate the infection. The sexual differentiation is true for all four of the common types of human malaria, is that yeah, correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they, all, they all work through that same mechanism. Do the hemoglobinopathies, such as sickle cell anemia trait, uh, really confer protection? Yeah, they do. And as a matter of fact, the protection that sickle cell trait gives you against malaria disease is really one of the best examples of human evolution that, uh, that you can see where there, there's something that is a, a favorable trait, in this case, the ability to survive malaria that's selected for in the population. Uh, now, I, we, we don't know exactly how that happens, but sickle cell trait and several other of the hemoglobinopathies somehow prevent malaria parasites from reproducing as efficiently and offer you protection, if not completely from the infection, at least from getting as severely ill with it. Would thalassemia be another example of a protective uh, inherited trait? Yeah, that's right, as is uh, G6PD deficiency and then some of the other uh, hemoglobinopathies. It sounds to me like there is some natural immunity to the disease, but people can get infected over and over again. Is that correct? Yeah. When, when people build up acquired, naturally acquired immunity, it, it's really protection more against the clinical manifestations of infection as opposed to the infection itself. So when I was a medical student out in western Kenya back in 1986, we were doing a study looking at uh, naturally acquired malaria antibodies, and so we wanted to treat people, in this case adult men, and then look at the rate at which they became reinfected, and we checked them for malaria parasites before we treated them. 
and found that 90% of these men were walking around with malaria parasites in their blood and not a single one was sick. So they clearly were able to tolerate the presence of the parasite, but it wasn't, wasn't causing them any problems. So the immunity didn't prevent infection per se, but it kept them symptom-free and healthy and alive. That's right. So there are these walking reservoirs of malaria parasites that maintain the transmission cycle without actually being sick, kind of like the typhoid malaria, or ty- typhoid Mary. Typhoid Mary. Okay. I want to thank Dr. Christopher Plow, an internationally recognized expert on malaria and professor of medicine at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. Today we have discussed the epidemiology and pathophysiology of one of the world's most lethal infectious diseases, malaria. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions about this program, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.